Hey, I, I hope you're excited to be here tonight, church family, and those of you joining online, and I'm, I'm excited for where we're going to be. I'm excited every Wednesday, but excited for where we're going to uh, spend a little bit of time the next couple weeks as we walk through. Uh, we're still talking about developing a biblical worldview, but we've, we've honed in, we've left the space station, and we've come down to the mountain that is the Bible, Scripture. And we're walking through and, and, and looking at not just one part of it, but all of it. So last week we looked at what we would call maybe more the theological view of Scripture. What does the Bible say about the Bible? In a few weeks we'll walk through what I would say is the apologetical view of Scripture. Not apologizing for it, but, but what are, where are all the outside proofs that validate that back up? What do we do with the claims of errors and things like that? And how did we get the Bible? And, and what's that process and how do we address it? But... But in between those two moments, I, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, this week and the next couple weeks uh, just looking real practically, how, how are you and I to engage with the Bible? We know all the facts in the world about the Bible, but if you and I don't know how to engage with the Bible, we're going to struggle. In fact, when I look at my life, if I were to lay out the story uh, and testimony of my life, the defining moment of my life as a Christian, if the defining moment of my life is the moment of salvation, because that's where everything changes, the defining moment of my life as a Christian would be March of 2002 as a 13-year-old uh, young man starting to, for the first time in my life, open up my Bible on a regular basis and read it personally and privately. Uh, we would many times use the, the, the catchphrase, uh, I began to have a quiet time. I began to engage, and that is, I say that is the defining moment of my life spiritually as a believer because it's what changed everything for me. It's what all of a sudden started creating and crafting in me a hunger for the Lord, a knowing of the Lord personally and intimately and deeply, and, and Scripture began to do in my life exactly what God promises His Word is going to do. But oftentimes we struggle to get in the Word because there's just various, a various struggles. So I've couched this question for tonight. How do we open our Bibles and read our Bible and hear God talk to us? And I say it that way because... Uh, that's, that's really the question. Now, I remember going to my dad in, in high school at one point and I said, Dad, I'm reading my Bible. I'm not aware of any major sins I'm hit com committing habitually. I'm engaging in ministry. I, I, but every time I get alone with the Lord, it's just, it just feels dry. just feel like God is distant. God is just quiet right now is what I said. And I was really ready and prepared and really wanting a great spiritual answer, okay? So I was ready for the answer to say, well, well, son, you know, you need to buy a Greyhound bus ticket and get to the mountains in, in, in Colorado and, 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 and walk until you see a burning bush and take off your sandals, right? That's what I was looking for. Instead, what my dad, and as often is the case with my dad, uh, offered an answer I wasn't ready for, which was, well, you need to change your expectations. And I went, what? That's the most, I'm like pouring my emotion out and that's like, the, what is, change my expectations. And he said, yeah, you need to change your expectations. He says, let me just ask you a question. How does a person communicate? And I started to really think through and said, stop overthinking it. How does a person communicate? And I said, well, with words. So how does a person communicate with words if they don't speak audibly? Well, they write their words down and you read them. 
And he said, what is another word, one other name for the Bible? I said, the word of God. And he said, exactly. You need to change your expectations because every time you open up the Bible and read, you are reading what God is saying. Now, what he didn't mean by that, and we'll come to this the next couple weeks, he didn't mean that whatever I read in the Bible is God's specific direction at that moment. So if I open up my Bible and read that David slew Philistines, it means God wants me to go slay some Philistines. It's not what he meant by it. He was dressing an attitude, an expectation, a way of viewing Scripture. And that's where we're going to start tonight. If, if the Bible is the five things we saw last week, if the Bible is God-breathed, written by God, through, by the Holy Spirit, through human authors, we said it's understandable, it's powerful, it's authoritative, it's inerrant, and it's sufficient Scripture is all you and I need to know him truly. Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God charges Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and we'll look at it here in a second. He tells Joshua that Joshua's success as a man and a leader is tied to what? His meditation day and night on the word of the Lord. Scripture is what you and I need, yet the the statistics say that among Protestant churchgoers, and mind you, that's not even born-again believers, that's anybody who identifies as a Protestant in church, 32% read the Bible every day, 27% read a few times a week, 12% once a month, 11% a few times a month, 5% once a month, 12% never. The number one challenge among Protestant churchgoers, they indicate It's hard when I read my Bible to actually understand it. Yet the flip side is in the same, in a a separate study in 2016, found that the regular reading of Scripture as a child is the single greatest impact on how loyal that child remains to the faith as they grow older. But we struggle, and we struggle for various reasons. Sometimes we don't know, we don't know what to do. Sometimes that's, that's, we have bad expectations, and that's why we're doing what we're doing tonight. So you've got on your, on your note sheets there, I've given a couple different categories. I want to start tonight before we even look at how, what do we do when we're actually reading Scripture. I just want to address how do we approach Scripture? How do you and I approach Scripture? And, and I'll specify, not all of us are going to struggle with the same things on here. Uh, probably by and large, if we were to go through and really do some survey work in here, probably those who are older are going to have certain areas that are tougher for them versus those who are younger because there's generational differences and a variety of things. But, but we need to be aware, what are our convictions, our attitude, and our expectations when we come to the Word? Convictions. What do I mean by convictions? I mean, what is it that you and I actually believe about the Word? That's what we looked at last week. What am I convicted about with the word? 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, we saw it last week. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may, may actually be adequate, equipped for every good work. You and I better have a conviction regarding scripture that scripture is God's word, Period. All of it's God's word. It's, it's, it's powerful, it's understandable, it's authoritative, it's inerrant, it's sufficient. You and I must hold those convictions as we approach the word, but not only that. And I tried to give you notes, uh, reference notes on your sheets because I know sometimes I forget to repeat, though I did give Jolene permission to call me out on it anytime I forget on a Wednesday night. 
I also know sometimes we got to move quick, so if you, you can keep up if you want or you can follow with the notes, but listen to John 16. We've got, we got to have the conviction that the Bible is the Word of God, but we also need to have a conviction that the Bible is the primary means that the Holy Spirit uses to speak. Look at what Jesus talks about in John 16. John 16, verse 12, he says, I have many more things to say, but you can't bear them now. He's talking to his disciples. But when he, the Holy Spirit comes, the the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, whatever, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you, all that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he takes of mine and discloses it to you. And then further down in verse, um, not verse 26, that would be a fault. Chapter 15, verse 26, when the helper comes, it's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. In chapter 14, he speaks about the Spirit And he says, I will ask, Father, he will send the helper, verse 16, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And in here, and I apologize, I am not seeing the right reference, but it's in here that he says that the spirit will bring to remembrance the words I have said. And I'm scanning my page to find it. I'm not making it up. Here's the point. The primary way the Holy Spirit speaks is the written word. He brings to remembrance to to our minds and to our hearts what we've read in the Word, the the Word we've memorized. He he reminds us of the Word. He's the one who authored the Word. He he speaks about Jesus' words. He discloses what God says. There's never a time God is not speaking His Word. The primary way the Holy Spirit speaks to us is through His Word. It's why the Holy Spirit will never communicate something to you and I that contradicts the written Word. We do affirm, can the Holy Spirit speak to us using means outside of the written word? Absolutely, read the book of Acts. Go read stories, especially out of the persecuted church where they don't have access as much to the written word. Holy Spirit, you better believe, can show up and speak to you and you know it, but the Spirit will never speak something to you that contradicts what he wrote in the written word. But oftentimes, the primary way he's gonna speak to us is through the written word, with the written word. Flip over if your Bibles are open to 1 Peter chapter two. We've gotta have a conviction that the Bible is the word of God. We've gotta have the conviction that the primary way the Spirit's gonna speak is with the word of God and through the word of God. But you and I also have to have a conviction that there is no way to grow deeper in Christ apart from the word of God. Look at 1 Peter chapter two. Verse 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It echoes what, what Paul wrote in, in 2 Timothy, and we already saw that the word, is, the word is profitable to make us adequate and equipped. It is impossible for you and I as a child of God to grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus Christ if the only time we open our Bible and intake in it, intake from it, and we feed on it is when the, and we're in church with the pastor. It's impossible. 
We will not grow deeper in our relationship with Christ. That's why God says, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, literally. You need, you, you need bread, check, check. You need bread. You need bread to live, but you can go without bread for a couple days. You can't go without the word of God. Now, I don't mean by that we've got to create a legalism to where if you don't read your Bible every day, something's wrong. That's not what I, that's, that would go against Sunday's sermon. That's a different deal. What I am saying is you and I have to have a conviction that I will never grow deeper and more intimate with Christ if I am not feeding on his word. That doesn't mean you can't read Christian books. It doesn't mean you can't do Bible studies by other authors. But those things should never be more than supplements for the word. I'll never forget meeting a friend in college. She was working a camp. She was from out of state and a dear family friend of ours. And and she happened to be near Dallas. And I drove up and we were talking. We were talking about the word. And she said, she said, yeah, we've got a guy about how people rely on books more than scripture. And again, I'm not, hear me. I'm truly not anti-books. One look in my office will tell you that. They're not for decoration. I do use them. But she said, we've got a guy on our camp staff talking about how he was reading this awesome and incredible book. And he said, I want to get better. This is what it was. I want to get better at praying scripture. So I found this really great book about praying scripture. I got an idea. You want to get better at praying scripture? Read the Bible, understand it rightly, and pray it correctly. That's, that's kind of how you're going to get better at reading scripture. But it shows you our mind and attitude oftentimes which is do we really, really, truly think and convicted that this is the only way to grow? So these are the convictions we hold. Then what's our attitude? How do we act regarding Scripture? I mean, go look at First Peter again with me. Like newborn babes long. And maybe this is more pertinent for me and a few others in the room than others of you, but I know very well the longing of a newborn babe for milk. It's desperate. It's loud because there is no survival for that babe apart from it. We should long. There should be a desperation. Psalms describes it as the deer pants for the water. Psalm 119 and 129, and there is a panting, a longing, a desperation for the word. We should be desperate for the word because we're convicted. It's God's word. The Holy Spirit speaks through it, and we can't grow apart from it. There should be an awe and affection in the way that we, we react to, towards the words. Open your Bible right in the middle to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and look at verse 103 and 104. Psalm 119, 103, and 104. All of Psalm 119 is a love letter from the psalmist about the Word of God. Listen to what he describes in these verses, 103 through 104. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. There is an awe, an affection, a delight. Psalm 119, 127, speaking about uh, the word of the Lord, defines it this way. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Your word is of more precious value to me than that which is most valuable in the eyes of basically every human and every culture of all time. 
There should be an awe, an affection, a love for the Word of God. Uh, one of my favorite books about how to read Scripture by Howard Hendricks, he gives this, this example. Met him, he says, this is Howard Hendricks speaking, he says, I met a man once who drove his family all the way across the country to attend a conference on, of Bible teaching. Amazed, I asked him, why'd you come so far? And he said, because I wanted to get under the Word of God. So Howard said, on the face of it, that sounds wonderful, but later it hit me. Here was a man willing to drive 1,200 miles to get under the word of God, but was he just as willing to walk across his living room floor, pick up a Bible, and get into it for himself? There should be an awe, an affection, a desperation in our, in our actions towards the word of God. There should be a consistency towards the word of God. Uh, Mark chapter 1, 35, you don't, don't turn there unless you're just really exciting and like to move your fingers fast. Because we're about to go right back to the Old Testament, that's why I say. But listen to Mark 1.35, speaking about Jesus. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place, a deserted place, a private place, and was praying there. Luke 5, verse 16, makes this statement about Jesus. But Jesus himself would often slip away, or literally the word is, as was his habit. If God himself demonstrated a consistent, habitual commitment to getting alone with the Lord, oh, so much more you and I. There should be a consistency to getting alone in the word. If you've got your Bibles, go to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1 says, as God's speaking to Joshua, be strong and courageous, verse 6. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Be strong and courageous, verse 6, as you go into the land and, and fight. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded to you. Verse 8, the law of the Lord shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. There should be a consistency to the way in which you and I think about and meditate, and that word meditate, by the way, is the idea of words being on the tips of our, our lips, speaking them out loud repeatedly. That's literally the idea of, of meditate, of meditate in, the, in the Hebrew. It's to repeat something out loud over and over and over again, which means that our approach to Scripture isn't just to go open up my Bible, read a verse, check my box. It's to read that verse and find ways to think on that verse and repeat that verse and repeat that truth over and over and over and over again into our life. There's a consistency. There's also a knowing by faith. Here's what I mean by that. The aim, the purpose, the way we act regarding Scripture. We're not, our goal in, in being in the Word is not guilt to achieve a duty. That's, guilt's always a poor motivator. It's powerful, but it's poor. It kills the joy. Our goal in reading the Word is not to be a Bible trivia champion which I don't know what you're going to do with that because there's no shows offering a lot of money in Bible trivia these days. The goal of being in the Word, so we'll look at Sunday, it's to know Him. And when I say know Jesus, I don't mean know about Jesus. I mean to know Him, to experience Him moment by moment throughout the day, to, to know Him deeply, personally, intimately, and part of what that means is our aim is to know Him. It means how do we act towards the Word? How do we how do we choose to act towards the Word in our attitude? It means we seek to know Him by obeying the Word, 
by believing what the word actually says, by acting our life upon what the word says, even when it's hard and difficult. So if, this, if, if attitude is how we act towards Scripture, expectations are what do we expect when we come to Scripture? And I mentioned the story earlier about me and my dad because sometimes, and maybe I don't know if this is truer for those of us who are younger than older, I don't know. Uh, I do know it's true for many of us in my generation, which is we need to demystify our expectations of getting in the Word. What I mean by that is sometimes we have this perception because we've heard preachers preach and go, there was this time I was in the Word and God told me that you better give this up for my glory. And we talk and there's nothing bad about that. I've got those stories. The danger is all of a sudden it creates an expectation that when a preacher says I should get in the Word, that means I'm going to open up my Bible and the lights are going to dim except for a spotlight on the page. And I'm going to sense this kind of awe, like a loud bass rumble rumbling through my room. And and I'm going to get there, and I'm going to be so captivated that I, I don't have a single distracted thought. And, and every time I get alone, and listen, are there moments when you get in the Word and the Spirit really shows you something that's like that? Yeah, it's called mountaintops. But you and I don't spend most of the time on the mountaintop. We spend it in the valley on the trail. And so we need to demystify, understand that the way we get alone in the Word, it's hard work. I tried to emphasize that reading Joshua. Did you catch that? Joshua, be strong and courageous going into the land. When it comes to meditating and obeying my word, be strong and very courageous. Because it takes hard work because you and I have a real enemy who's more focused on keeping us away from the word. It takes work to learn how to, how to eat of the word. No different than it takes work for a child to learn, right? Jessie loves these little food pouches. But she's got to grow and learn and work on how to eat steak. And long term, you want to eat steak, not food pouches. Unless you're actually on the International Space Station, and that's kind of hard to eat steak. It takes time. It takes time because the goal is to know God. It takes time to be in the Word. I think this often discourages people. Wow, I need to be in the Word. And I just listened to Pastor talk all about this deal in the Word. And then I try to get in the Word, and, and all I walk away is with something small. Nothing's wrong there, but it takes time to grow. I think back to when I first started getting in the Word. I decided I'd read through the book of Hebrews for my quiet times. I'd never heard anybody read out of the book of Hebrews. Now, if you studied the book of Hebrews, and you know, Hebrews and Romans are always held up as the two hardest, most theologically dense letters in all of Scripture. I read through the book of Hebrews, and I got one thing out of it. All of my life is for the glory of God. Today, if I read through chapter one of Hebrews, I'll probably pull out 25 things. Neither's good or bad, right or wrong. You know what's good? Being in the word and allowing the Lord to open your eyes, and it takes time to grow. So we need to take some of the super spiritual lenses off. It takes work. It takes time. We need to do it privately, seeking the Lord in, 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 in the closet. As was his habit, got, Jesus got alone. If the only time we're in the word, and maybe, I, I don't know, Again, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I, I came from working with college students. Yeah, we'll be in the Word. And by being the Word means we'll go to the coffee shop, put our earbuds in with all our best friends at the table, and we'll all read our Bibles together. Now listen, I, there's nothing wrong with reading your Bible in a coffee shop with earbuds and friends. And Thomas is laughing because Thomas and I know the exact same people who do it because Thomas was there when I was having to teach through all this with him. But if we are never alone with the Lord and his word, we're missing the pattern that Christ set for us.
we should expect, uh, and I wrote, I put on this paper, I used the word intellect. What I mean by this is, is, is this. We need to expect that sometimes you're going to spend time reading the Word, thinking on the Word, meditating on the Word, and sometimes you're going to learn and grow in Christ in a way that's very experiential. What do I mean by that? You're reading in the Word that God is the God of all comfort who brings comfort and affliction, and all of a sudden you walk through an affliction, and you, 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 you're, you're meditating on that, you're bringing that back, and as you're bringing that back, you are experiencing and, and sensing and even feeling on an emotional level God's comfort. Sometimes that's going to be how you grow. Sometimes your growth is going to be not something you're feeling, but something you're thinking. So think about talking about biblical worldview. Perhaps the reason so much of the church has such a poor biblical worldview is we spent so much time, so little time in it, that we've not learned to think from it. Sometimes the truth you're going to learn is, is something that maybe we'd label more intellectual. Sometimes maybe the truth you and I need to learn is it says God is faithful, so it doesn't matter if I feel God is faithful. It says that Jesus is fully God and fully man. I need to make sure to lock that down because when I went to work today, I actually had a conversation with somebody who said that Jesus only appeared to be a man. But if he only appeared to be a man, then he can't be my great high priest because he wasn't really human and he couldn't really experience temptation like me, which means it's going to cause the opposite of what it says, which it says to come to him with boldness and confidence for grace and mercy. But how can he offer me grace and mercy and represent me because he's not fully man, right? Sometimes it's going to be things like that. You should expect Scripture to bring conviction in your life. We should all expect Scripture. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce the division between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart before the eyes of whom no one may hide. You and I should expect as we get in Scripture God to convict us, we should also expect this. We should expect God to grow us. You should expect as you read Scripture, whether you are aware of the growth or not, listen, growth doesn't have to be something you and I are aware of. God's the one growing us. He needs to be aware of it. I just need to trust Him and let, me, let Him grow me. And it's a lot easier to notice growth from the outside looking at someone growing than it is from within, right? Like it's easy for me to look at Jesse and go, holy smoke, she is so tall now. But I don't know that I ever had that thought when I was the one growing. God's going to grow us. We should expect confidently God to grow us. So if this is the, the convictions, the attitude, the heart set, the mindset, the way we approach Scripture, then what do we do as we get into Scripture? Well, there's three things. Now, your, your cheat sheet tonight, your, I, I told the deacons I wouldn't call it a cheat sheet. That sounds like it's sinful. Your spark notes tonight, your whatever else we want to call it, uh, has more than we're going to talk about tonight. And that's intentional, hopefully, so the next couple of weeks we don't have to reprint all new stuff. So keep that, but we'll also have some in case you lose it. We're just going to look at one of the three things, but there's three basic things when you and I open up the Bible that we need to do. We need to observe we need to interpret, and we need to apply. Observation, interpretation, application. Now, the truth is, the more we're used to those things, we kind of do all those things sometimes at once without realizing it. But we split them up to try to learn well through each of them. 
So observation, interpretation, application, with the ultimate goal being, what does God mean in this passage? So let me just give you a little definition note. I don't think I put this in your notes. But I'm, uh, so you're going to hear a variety of terms, verse, passage, unit, book, letter, pericope, text, scripture. Scripture would refer to the Bible. Book or letter refers to a book of the Bible because they were originally, most of them, letters, but now we call them books. Both are same. If you hear me use the term, a verse obviously means a verse. If you hear me use the term uh, text, that could be a verse, that could be a whole paragraph, that could be a whole chapter, that could be all of the Bible. The reason I say this is there's a term used pericope. How many of y'all know what pericope means? Okay, here's why. I, I get into preaching class in seminary, and I'm not dumb. Spent my whole life in the church. I'm currently on staff at a church. I have an undergraduate degree in Bible, and I get in this preaching class, and all of a sudden, the only word they're using is pericope. I've never heard this word in my life. And I've already had two and a half years of Greek at this point. I, I, I've never heard this word. And then, lo and behold, a pericope is simply like the paragraph unit. <laughs> That's what it means, okay? So I just want to make sure everybody knows terms, because I sometimes am not aware if I interchange terms, I've, I've just done it too much. Uh, so pericope, paragraph, passage, all would refer to the idea of a, a unit that goes together of Scripture. So observation, Psalm 119, verse 18, the psalmist writes and says this, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Open my eyes that I may see the wonder and the glory of your word. And there's a quote on your passage from the wonderful theologian Sherlock Holmes. It says, you see, but you do not observe. And here's, here's why we're going to focus on observation, because you and I see stuff all the time. But how many of you know off the top of your head how many stoplights between your house and the church? But how some of you, you've driven that for 30 years. You see it every time you drive it, but you've never observed it. How many of you, when you walked in the room, observed and, and counted, there's whatever number of people wearing red shirts? You've seen everybody, but we've not observed, right? Seeing is different than observing. Seeing is passive. Seeing is, yeah, it's there, but observing is intentional. And so understand, if we're going to be good observers of Scripture, you have to be an active and engaged reader with Scripture, you cannot be passive. Viewing is passive. And, and, and for those of you in the room more in my generation, we have grown up in a passive society because we grew up with all multimedia formats. Some of you older who had a lot of life before TV was in every home, you may not be as prone to being passive in the way you engage with things. There's not a good or bad there. It's just the difference of when we grew up and what was around culturally. We cannot be passive, though, to take in. There's got to be active. We've got to be looking. It implies participation. And so when we come to Scripture, when we open up a passage, we need to read it freshly. Read it freshly. What do I mean? You need to read every time you read, whether it's a single verse, whether it's a passage of Scripture, if you're really trying to seek and know and observe, read it as if for the first time every time. Don't sit there and go, and I'm not saying you can't have favorite passages, but, but it'd be easy to miss things when you go, oh yeah, I've read that verse before. 
In fact, one of my favorite series I did with college students was uh, the top, the, the top ten, uh, the top ten misunderstood Bible verses. And the top ten misunderstood Bible verses are, are in there for one of two reasons: either we take them out of context, or we are so familiar with them that we no longer see the wonderful thing that's there. So read it fresh. Read it for the first time every time. Read it personally. Understand what we looked at with Scripture. Scripture is understandable, meaning this. God wrote this work. God wrote and authored this book to communicate with you and me. God could have chosen any way in the vastness of his mind to communicate, and he chose to write it down because he wants to communicate to you and me. The way my grandmother would put it if she was here speaking it, she would say, Scripture is God's love letter to you. Read it personally. Doesn't mean everything in there you can twist to your own personal agenda. It's not what we'll look at that next week in interpretation. But read it personally. Read it holistically. Take everything in. Here's what I mean by that. There's a variety of ways to read it holistically. Read a passage repeatedly. Read it and reread it and reread it again. Don't just read it once and toss it out, but read it and reread it. You know, I know super deep, crazy seminary secret. Actually, seminary didn't teach me this, I don't think. If they did, it's not where I remember it from. When I prep a sermon, you know the first thing that I do? I read the passage a bunch of times over. And the best of my work actually comes out from reading most of it a bunch of times over. That's the foundation for everything. Read it. Reread it. Read it again. Read it multiple times. You know what? You may have a quiet time, and you may decide in your quiet time that God's really showing you some stuff. And you're, you may read the same passage every day in your quiet time for a month. And you know what? That's A-OK. God never gave us a Bible reading plan. He just gave us the Bible and said, read it and meditate on it. And I'm not knocking Bible reading plans. I just think there's something, at least in, for me, there's something about, well, all right, I read the chapter, move to the next chapter. Man, if God's showing you something, read, anchor there. I know someone who was really struggling with self-worth, and he said, you know what I did to really combat that is I spent a month, and every day for a month in my quiet time, I read Psalm 139 and just processed it and processed it and, 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 and thought on it. Uh, read from the beginning. If you're going to read through many of the books of the Bible, you need to start at the beginning. Don't just cherry pick in the middle. Now, some books, you don't have to do that, right? Book of Psalms. You don't have to start at Psalm, you know, every, I am, I've never gotten to Psalm 150 because I always start at the beginning and somewhere I lose track. No, Psalms is a different kind of work. But if you really want to understand what God's saying in Philippians, it's really helpful if you start at the beginning and not just move to, straight to verse, chapter. How many microphones can we use tonight? The demons live in the sound system. That's not a knock at the booth, guys. That's just what they have to put up with, and that's spiritual warfare back there is what they're doing. Uh, read, read through a whole book in one sitting. Read through a whole book in one sitting. Because sometimes we can get so focused on this one tree that has a white spot, we forget that the whole, the whole forest has a certain shape to it. Read through the whole book in one sitting. Obviously, some books that's much easier with. Jude is 26 verses. Isaiah is six, six really long chapters. My 
I don't know if it's going to go in and out. Might just have to start talking loud in a second. So read from the beginning. Read audibly. Don't forget this. Scripture was originally written and meant to be read out loud. Sometimes there's word plays and things you miss when you and I don't read out loud. In fact, and maybe some of you do this. I guess for whatever reason, to me, it feels awkward to sit by myself and read aloud. Even though reading silently in our minds is actually really a relatively new human phenomenon in human history. Typically, when you read, you read out loud. Don't be afraid to read out loud. Read that passage out loud. Read it. Uh, reading it helps you notice things in inflection. Read it out loud. Read it. Reading out loud also helps you not fall asleep when you're really tired. Just as a side note. If you do fall asleep while talking out loud, that's actually impressive. <laughs> but if you don't like to read out loud, let me encourage you. There are so many copies of the Bible read audibly. Listen to them. Some of you are actually more so audible learners. You may actually pull more out of listening to someone read Scripture than trying to read Scripture. Or you may have a family member who's dyslexic, who it is a real challenge to read. Doesn't mean they shouldn't try to read, but man, take advantage of some of the tools we have today. Goodness, there's a, there's a copy, I think, it's, I think it's free, James Earl Jones reads the whole Bible. I mean, goodness gracious, I don't know that that's what God sounds like, but that's a pretty good human option. Listen to it out loud. Read it imaginatively. And here's what I mean by read it imaginatively. Put yourself in the text. When you read the story of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes, fathom being in that boat, small boat, getting rocked back and forth by waves, water spritzing in your face, hard at work in the middle of the night with only the moonlight, actually probably not the moonlight because clouds would be over due to the storm. Flipping water out of that boat. Read it. Put, put yourself into the text. All of a sudden, things start to pop out. I don't mean imagine things that aren't there, but try to read the text in a way that you hear it, you see it, you smell it, you feel it, you taste it. This is why so many people flock to the Holy Land. Or you hear people who go to Israel say, it changed how I read my Bible. Why? Because all of a sudden, it's not just stories in a fairy tale land. You realize, oh my goodness, when it says go up to Jerusalem, that Joseph and Mary went up to Jerusalem, it's because literally it is an uphill ride the whole way for a nine-month-old pregnant woman either walking or riding a donkey. Read it imaginatively. Read it resourcefully. Use good study Bibles. Use a Bible atlas, concordance. We'll talk more about these things in, in, in latter weeks, but there's so many resources you can use to help you observe things. Read thoughtfully. And this is the bulk of what observation is. So I'm going to do my best to not overwhelm all of us, but we know I'm not good at that, so we will do our best. Read thoughtfully. What I mean by that is we need to put in the time, the effort, and the attention to really think through what's being communicated. So there's basic questions to ask. Who? Who's writing this passage? Who was this passage originally written to? What is said about the people in this passage? Who's present? Who's absent? Who's, who's described and how are they described? What are the people in the passage saying or doing? And, 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 and what does it mean? Questions of who? Give you a great example. Second Chronicles 14 talks about the, the beginning of King Asa. 
And you can read that whole passage and ask these questions as King Asa cries out to the Lord for deliverance from an army that's come up. And you can ask all these questions and you get an incredible reality of what's in that story, an incredible picture of faith in the Lord. But then when you ask who wrote this and who are they writing to, you realize that we don't know perfectly who wrote it. There's a couple guesses out there based on quality research. Most would probably say Ezra. But it was written to the Jewish people who had just come back from exile, who were inhabiting a Jerusalem and promised land that had no protection, that had been pillaged and plundered, and for whom it would have been very tempting to make alliances with the pagan peoples that were there, for protection's sake, and this story was part of a massive collection of stories written to encourage them not to give in. That all of a sudden adds whole more depth to reading those passages. Who, what, questions about happenings, what are the events? Is there a re- what is the order in which they appear? Is there, is there a reason for that order? Who, what happens to the people in the story? Or, or maybe it's a New Testament letter. What's the argument? What's the point? What is the writer trying to communicate? What? Where? Where is the narrative taking place? Where are people going? Where is the writer writing from? Where are the original readers? We do this in Philippians. Where's Paul when he says, rejoice, writing from prison? It's details like that we're observing. When? When did these events take place? When did they take place in relation to other events in Scripture? When was the writer writing? I read you earlier, Mark 1.35, that Jesus got up early in the morning and he went and got alone. But if you ask the question, when? I think I probably said where. I meant when. If you ask the question when, you discover that in that same passage right before it, the day prior was a nonstop one of the most busy days of ministry we have, we have recorded in the life of Christ. Which means as a human, he would have been tired and groggy, drained both physically and spiritually. Yet what did he do early in the morning? Not hit the snooze button, but he got up and got alone. When? When does it happen? Why? This would be really what we're going to look at next week with interpretation. Why? Why, why was this story there? Why is this command there? Why is this explained? What, fo- what follows it? What precedes it? Why does this person do this? What does it mean? For instance, why is the parable of the prodigal son only found in one gospel but the feeding of the 5,000 four gospels? Is, that, is there something important about that? Wherefore? Or what, is this, what difference does this passage make if I apply the truth tangibly to my life? The last question is always, how does it impact my life? These are basic questions to ask. There's basic things to look for. We, we look at grammar. Pay attention to the verbs, the subjects, the objects, the prepositional phrases, the connectives. And by the way, if you go, but Wes, I'm not a grammarian. I've got a shocking statement for some of you. My worst subject in school is grammar. And you think I'm kidding. Vocabulary and writing, I'm good at. But grammar, I still to this day go back and will just reread basic grammar terms to make sure I really understand them. I have to work hard at it. But oh, how it pays off to go, wow. In that passage Sunday, Paul says, I have counted And then he uses that same verb two more times, but in the present tense. 
Meaning I didn't just count it back then as if it was a one-time thing, but I am so committed to what I understand that I continually and perpetually think about it. That matters. Because what is he saying I'm perpetually thinking? I'm perpetually thinking that anything I can put my confidence in to stand before Jesus is worthless in view of Christ's righteousness. So it's okay if you're not good at grammar. I'm not good at grammar. And we can help each other out. Look at structure. Is there a literary structure? This, this is, we'll do more of this next week. Is there a biographical structure? Here's what I mean by that. When you read First and Second Samuel, first you see King Saul, who's given as the bad example. Then you see King David, who's given as the good example. There's, a, there's a, a biographical structure. There's a geographical structure. The book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the movement of the people of God geographically from Egypt to Israel. There's various structures. What's going on there? There's things to pay attention to. You want to look for things that are emphasized. How do you know if something's emphasized? How much time is given to it? Is there a stated purpose? The Gospel of John at the very end tells you his purpose in writing. Is there a certain order things are in the text? If you get really into stuff, part of what's, what's beautiful about the Greek and the Hebrew is, is, is based on word order, certain words you know are emphasized in unique ways. What's emphasized? And sometimes that's easy to see in the English and sometimes it can be tougher. It's, it's, it is there though. Look for things that are repeated. Is there a certain term, a phrase, a clause, an idea that's repeated? Think about Psalm 136. The love of the Lord endures forever. The love of the Lord endures forever. The love of the Lord endures forever. What is God trying to say to you and I? My love endures forever. It doesn't matter if you're on the highest of clouds or the lowest of valleys. My love endures forever. And it's good in all seasons and for all things. And you can count on the fact that I love you. Things that are repeated. Things that are related. Is there a cause and effect? Is there a question and answer? This is the book of Romans. The book of Romans is, here's the gospel. Now, I'm going to spend 11 chapters explaining it and defending it from your top questions. And then once we've answered all the questions, I'm going to tell you what it looks like played out in your life starting in chapter 12. Look for things that are alike or dislike or un unlike. Are there similes or metaphors? Are there contrasts with irony, right? The story of the centurion. Jesus, I'm a man under authority just like you. I know if you just say the words, my servant will be healed. And what did Jesus say? No one in all of Israel has this kind of faith. What a shot at Israel. There's not a single Jew, not a single person in the people of God who has the kind of faith like this foreign, dog, Roman centurion who is the picture of oppressive power, but who actually believes I can do what I say I can do. What a shot. Oh, and by the way, I'm pretty sure, where does that story fall? In Matthew's gospel, which was originally written for a Jewish audience. How piercing. Read things that are true of life. Where, when you read the passage, do you see people's emotion, their wants, their desires, their questions? Put yourself in the person's shoes. Read patiently. Read patiently. You don't have to observe everything possible you can observe. Take your time. Relax Relax and enjoy the experience of seeking God in his word. And just for a second, stop with me, church family. Do you know how privileged and amazing it is that we have a copy of God's word in our language? That you don't have to rely on me to read from Latin to you? 
that you don't have to sit in the dark with none of it written in your language. There's still billions of, I say billions, I may clarify, at least millions of people who are in people groups whose language is either scriptures not translated in or they're a part of languages that don't even have written vocabulary. And you and I can, anytime we want, pick up a copy of God's word translated in words in, in, in modern day language we understand. Read it patiently and enjoy it. Read it prayerfully. If you read the Bible, you want to know the biggest things you ought to ask? Holy Spirit, help me understand what you're saying. Don't read apart from It's not just an academic process of ask all these questions, do all this. We ought to be prayerfully reading the Word. Lord, open my eyes. Help me see. And lastly is this. Ultimately, we read meditatively. We read meditatively. That Going back to that word in Joshua 1, verse 8. Meditate. We don't just read to check a box. We read to think on it day and out. Listen to these stats. Seven out of ten Protestant churchgoers somewhat agree that they think about biblical truths throughout the day. Now, women at 33% are more likely than men to think about Scripture throughout the day. Those of you 65 and up at 27% are more likely to think about the Bible throughout the day. And among those who read the Bible every day, only half think about biblical truths throughout the day. But think about that. In the Bible, there is not a single command that says, have a quiet time. But you and I are commanded all over the place to meditate on the Word of God. Here's why I emphasize that, because you can have a quiet time every day of your life. You can read a passage of Scripture every day of your life. But if you don't find and I don't find ways to chew and to meditate on the Word constantly, we're actually not following through with what God commands us to do with His Word. And I'll never forget when... when I first heard the story from my mom when I went to college, and all of a sudden I didn't have, I mean, I was living in a 10 by 18 room with two other guys. I had about five feet of personal space. There was no way to be completely alone, and my schedule was totally upended, and how do I have time alone with the Lord? I'll never forget my mom. She said, Wes, did you ever wonder why growing up I would, I would type up scripture in cute fonts and put a little border around it and cut it out with crafty scissors and laminate it and, and tape it up on cabinets? And I said, well, no, I just thought it's because we love the Word of God. That seems pretty obvious to me. And she said, that's true, but that's not why I did it. She said, because as a young mom with two kids under the age of five who was homeschooling the oldest with a baby on the other, some days I was just absolutely exhausted that the ability to get up enough time ahead of all of y'all and have myself ready by the time y'all got up was pretty well physically impossible. But to take God's word and post it up in places I knew I would have to stand every day so that while I was washing bottles, I could read that passage of scripture and meditate on it and meet with the Lord, that I could do. You're going to have to learn how to abide in the word of God and find ways to put the word of God in front of you. This is the idea of, of meditation on scripture. So maybe in, in your, your, your passage you read that day, you find a verse and you write it on an index card. I had a guy in college who he wrote it on an index card and every day he put that index card up on his wall and by you know, however many days he had all these verses. Maybe you journal and, you, and that journaling helps you think through. Maybe you're memorizing it. 
Some of you are super artistic and you remember what you doodle out. Maybe you draw a little doodle of what's there and you keep it in the forefront. Maybe you write it on your home screen. Maybe you voice record it and, and listen to it over and over. There are so many different ways and time doesn't permit me to go through the whole list I have here that's just a fraction of them on how to meditate on scripture. But the main point is finding ways to take what we read in the word of God and keep it in the forefront of our heart and mind all throughout the day. We read meditatively, and as we do these things, as we, as we read prayerfully and meditatively and patiently, as we read thoroughly, paying attention, thoughtfully, asking these questions, looking for these things, as we read holistically, as we read it personally, as we seek to read it freshly, what's going to happen is we begin to observe and make observations of what's going on in this passage. And the better job you and I do of observing what's going on in the passage the better job we'll do of understanding what it means rightly, which is where we'll pick up next week. So let me pray for us. There there is, um, I just stand by, there is nothing. I think we don't realize many times how literal Jesus meant when he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And we would be, as as a church, in America, a far more biblically sound people if we were more biblically literate. And unfortunately, we, we just aren't feeding on the word. We're starving. So may we be a people that feasts on the word. Hope this was helpful tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have your word. And I just, as you, as you know, that as I've prayed leading into tonight, I just hope that everyone walks away God, with something practical, tangible, something that encourages, something that convicts, that just enables us to be more faithfully in your word. It's great if we believe correctly about your word, that it is your word. God, it's great if we know all the ways to defend your word against all the criticisms that are are there, but if we don't actually know how to come to your word with the right attitude, the right conviction, the right expectation, and and what to actually do when we open up your word to to observe and to interpret and to apply, Lord, we, we will never really know what it means to walk intimately and personally with you. Lord, it's a joy when we're all together. And you know, Lord, as you've wired me and called me. It is a joy to teach and preach your word. But the reality is this. Nearly all of us in this room don't go home together. We don't go to each other's workplaces together. We go with you to those places. We have your word. Many of us multiple copies of your word in our homes. So Holy Spirit, may we be found abiding in Christ, feeding on your word, sensitive and yielded to you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.